Let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your word, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing be more loving. Amen. So what is the state of the church? What is the state of the church? Gallup tells us that Americans' membership in houses of worship continued to decline last year, dropping below 50% for the first time in Gallup's eight-decade trend. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999, and now self-identified Christians make up 63% of U.S. population That's in 2021, down from 75% only a decade ago. COVID accelerated what was already a downward trend, didn't it? An IFS analysis of the American Family Survey suggests that religious attendance has declined significantly in the past two years. The share of regular churchgoers is down by six percentage points, from 34% in 2019 to 28% in 2021, and churches are closing at a dizzying rate. 50 or 60 years ago, during the baby boom in the Cold War, the church represented a gathering place for families to grow together and be known together. It was also a place to network and politic around issues in business and public policy. These days, the internet offers some version of that, and the institutional church, still pretending that it will return to the 1950s and 60s, remains committed to the programs, policies, and procedures that worked way back then. Today, the church reminds me of, a, of the late stages of a, of a game of Jenga. <laughs> you know the game, Jenga? You take a block from the middle and you put it on top. The game starts with a stack of blocks, and the goal is to remove one of the blocks from the bottom, and you place it on the top without knocking it over. The person that knocks over the stack of blocks loses. As the game goes on, the top gets heavier and heavier, and the bottom is thinner and thinner, and eventually it collapses. The Presbyterian Church built its way a very top-heavy, process-driven way, when it held the foundation that could support it with volunteers and and people who had far more limited options for what to do with their time. We made plans then, and we stick to those plans now. But now things have changed, and the base is thin. The top is the same weight, and maybe even heavier, as we have only added more how we've always done it or how we said we were going to do it, to the top, and things are toppling. Now, anecdotally, I can tell you, as much as we at Red Clay are rebuilding, other churches in the surrounding area are not returning to worship and outreach with the same strength as ours. A recent tweet implored 
I wish people would pay more attention to the collapse of local congregations in the U.S. The average church in the U.S. has 65 people, half of what it was 20 years ago. Still, this church is not immune to realities facing churches. What do we do about that, the realities that are facing churches? This will get more inspiring, I promise. (laughs) What do we do? Do we retract and become a community of conformity? Perhaps we will survive if we retreat into our shell and become the same thing for the same kind of people that we always were and we always figured we would be. As long as they conform to how we do things, we'll be invitational even. But how is that working out for country clubs and civic organizations like the Rotary, the Lions, and the Grange? If not conformity, do we lash out and become a community of conflict? Well, that's certainly a common direction for the local church. People become upset about how things aren't the way that they want them to be. They don't have control the way that they have always wanted to have it, and then a rigidity against new people and new ministries and new ideas is born, which, of course, just accelerates the toppling demise of the organization. But those aren't the only options, conformity or conflict. They seem to be the two options most likely chosen by churches, but they aren't the only options. We could become a community of consequence. We could become a community of contributive consequence. Last week we entered this scripture passage, and when we did, we met Jesus leaving the synagogue. Being in the church together with Jesus, gathered together to learn and worship, was consequential. Shouldn't it be for everyone? They left the doors of the place and immediately contributed to the well-being of Simon's mother-in-law, who was sick in bed. They helped her, and in turn, she was able to be generous herself. And it doesn't stop there for Jesus and his followers. As we learn today in the verses that follow, the sick and the possessed start to come to Jesus for healing and wholeness. Do you see what the scripture tells us? It tells us that the whole town gathered at his door. Their experience in that church that day, the one in Capernaum, is not known to us. We may care about styles of worship. Traditional, contemporary, something else. But we don't know what kind of songs they sang or how compelling the preacher was or what kind of clothes were worn. We may care about how many people show up to worship on a Sunday morning, but we don't know how many arrived at the synagogue that day with Jesus. We may care about how many members there are in a church, but the gospel doesn't seem to need for us to know the size of the synagogue's mailing list. We may care about pledged 
giving and the size of the offering. But the author of Mark doesn't offer an accounting. What Mark wants us to know is that there was a contributive consequence to their time together in that synagogue with Jesus. The whole town showed up at his door because they left that synagogue to bring more healing and love into the world. We haven't figured out a way to measure that. We have measured worship attendance and membership and money for a very long time. I will share some of those figures with you in a moment. We count them and measure them against years past. And I will share some of those figures with you in just a moment. We will report these figures to the denomination which asks us to fill out a form with a line for each of these numbers. But I also wish they had a line for lemon cookies. <laughs> See, some of you might know that when I was a child, my parents split our church between the Presbyterians and the Pentecostals. When my parents were fed up with the Presbyterians, usually because the pastor wasn't up to snuff, so I get it. <laughs> they shifted to the Pentecostal church where my grandfather uh, was the pastor. Eventually, they would find something lacking there, too. So they'd scoop back to the Presbyterians and so on and so forth, which is how I became a Presbycostal. <laughs> On one occasion, though, and I do believe it was only one, my young parents became disillusioned with both the Presbyterians and the Pentecostals at the same time. And so they decided to spend one weekend of worship with the Mormons. I don't think they ever went again. I'm not saying they had a bad experience or anything. I'm sure they just got over their beef with one church or another. How do I recall this, though, this one-time drop-in with the Mormons? Because from then on, just about every month of my childhood, two ladies from the Mormon church would come to my house and visit my mother. <laughs> On the one hand, I don't think my mother liked it. I don't know why, but I can remember her being so frazzled about her need to clean and vacuum to prepare for them to come. On the other, on the other hand, I think it was really good for her. We lived in the middle of nowhere, Maine. And to have some company that seemed to really care about her, willing to drive out there and check in on us and pray for us, even when we never again went to their church, that was pretty special. I can tell you that I, for one, loved when they came because they always brought lemon cookies. They visited every month, and every month, lemon cookies. We will continue to measure what we always have. Our combined worship attendance of in-person and live stream has well surpassed the pre-COVID numbers of 2019 and is creeping up to be in line with where we were in 2017. November and December attendance figures were actually better than the ones from 2017. Since last year, at this time, 
Attendance quadrupled. From last March, more than doubled. Worship attendance is an imperfect and way too heavily weighted yet helpful number to determine the rebounding vitality of our community. That said, our membership numbers contain a drop, and we are at about 700 members. The roles were cleaned during the interim period, a standard practice which just means that people we haven't seen in a while were approached about whether or not they want to continue in membership. People also die. And people just don't become members of things like they used to. This was once a church of over a thousand members. I don't see that being a thing of the future. I love adding new members because it's a chance for people to say, I'm in. But that shouldn't be our why. It shouldn't be our goal. We will measure our financial picture. I'm pleased to report that we did meet our goal of a 10% increase in pledged giving this year. This was after several years, of course, of sliding downward. We managed to reduce last year a budget deficit of 38000 going into the year to 13000 which can easily be managed. As we approach next year with a growth mindset, we're budgeting again for a deficit and anticipate the need for increased giving again next year to get us to where we need to be. We'll also need to take on a fundraiser in the near future for the sake of our campus. These will be the measurements that we talk about. They really will be. Let's face it. The last five minutes of this sermon will probably be talked about more than any sermon I preach about all year. Did you hear what he said? About attendance and membership and money? Even, those are not, even though those are not the contributive consequences that the Gospel of Mark talks about. But it's hard to measure lemon cookies. It's hard to measure what it's like for a child who didn't have school clothes to all of a sudden have them, or a child who has no Christmas toys but all of a sudden has them, or to be an orphan in Africa and receive a book or a meal because of the generosity of this church. It's hard to measure the impact of the service challenge, a challenge that Rachel outlined that had our community packing meals and volunteering at the food bank and donating clothes and giving blood and wearing pink and signing up for CPR and making soup and sewing pillowcases. Going forward, the service challenge to be held every January, led by Rachel, will be one of, if not the, signature programs of this church. And we'll seek to invite other churches and organizations to join us next year. It's hard to measure what it means to have the consistent sound of that bell down there ring on every Sunday morning. It's hard to measure that. To have that to count on in our lives. It's hard to measure what it means to share music like we do here. Music like our noonday concerts and jazz concert and last night's gala event. The sound of silent night with candles in it. The sound of a string trio at midnight on Christmas Eve. This music brings healing and peace. But how do you measure that? 
How will our worship and music program grow and expand with all this world-class music energy on our staff? How these people have come together in one place with me? God only knows what's up. It's hard to measure what it means to have space and staff for our children and youth. For Sunday school and egg hunts and confirmation class and mission trips. These kids have been shaken over the past few years. They need a place to grow. They need a place, as Amy Julia Becker says, where they're inclined to show up not because they will be impressed, but because they will be loved. But how do you measure that? Rebuilding the youth ministry program and and joining with Jamie and what she's doing with the children's program and our children's music program, these will be our priorities this year. I'm very glad to have Ben and Dina here with us. We need to find ways to put our energy behind Ben and Dina and Jamie and what they're doing. We need to do that this year. Next year when I stand up and I talk like this on this sermon, on this day, I hope I'll have something really positive to say about how we came behind them and what they tried to do this year. It's hard to measure what it means to have community events, to have a place to gather and be friends with one another. Be real friends with one another over coffee and service, at lunch on some Tuesday, with, with some refreshments after a funeral or over a meal during Advent. How do you count friends? Friends made over crafts and sewing machines or pizza at Anthony's. The fall festival around food trucks, sharing art, studying scripture, walking for Friendship House. How do you count friends that you know you can count on when you're feeling sick or sad? John Dominic Crossan said, while we are waiting for God's intervention, God is waiting for our collaboration. How do you measure collaboration with God? So how can we know the state of the church? To a degree, we determine its state by deciding to take one of those three paths. Do we retract and become a community of conformity? Be just like us and just the way we always were. Do we lash out and become a community of conflict? I will get my way. We know churches like this. We've been churches like this. But let us be more optimistic. I'm more optimistic. I think we can be like the faithful and faith-filled community that followed Jesus out of that synagogue. A community of consequence. A community of contributive consequence. The kind of contributive consequence that, by the way, had the whole town showing up at the door. I don't know if that Mormon congregation was a community of conformity in some way. I'm sure they were. I don't know if they were a community of conflict either. It was made up of humans, so I'm guessing so. But I do know that their contribution in our lives was one of consequence. Which is why as part of that service challenge, Rachel and I, well mostly Rachel, have organized a hundred 
packages of these lemon cookies for you. For you. You can pick them up at Founders Hall outside the, outside the church. This might be the most difficult challenge of the entire month. And I'm, not, I'm honest, I'm not sure we're up for it. <laughs> can you really think of someone that you can visit? I, my hope is that a hundred of us will take this on. Go to someone's home, drop them off, encourage them in their day. Let them know someone's thinking of them. It doesn't have to be a long visit. You don't even have to go inside. You'll never be able to measure how much good you might have done. It is, as Pope Francis said, rivers do not drink their own water. Trees do not eat their own fruit. The sun does not shine on itself, and flowers do not spread their fragrance for themselves. Living for others is a rule of nature. We are all born to help each other, no matter how difficult it is. Life is good when you are happy, but much better when others are happy because of you. That's what those ladies were doing when they came to visit. I'm sure my mother told them countless times that she had her own church. She actually had two. (laughs) She wasn't going to be going to theirs. But they came anyway for years. And even as a child, I could tell they were in it for my mom and her well-being and her sense of connection, for her growth and for her happiness. My happiness seemed to matter to them too because when they came, they always brought... Lemon cookies. Amen.